Welcome back to the Joseph Cox Show. This week, I'm going to do another Torah-focused podcast. In past weeks, I've done five faces of Torah, inspirational, political, trivial, structural, and my answers to common questions. This week, I'm going to shift that just a bunch. The inspirational and structural are going together, and I'm going to do symbolic as a standalone section. We'll see how it goes. Let me know in your feedback. In addition, this week's Divrei Torah are dedicated to two people who passed away in the last two weeks. One was Yisrael ben Avraham, Israel, the son of Avraham, a teacher of many students from South Africa. And the second was Miriam bat Moshe Yaakov, Miriam, the daughter of Moshe Yaakov, who was a survivor of Auschwitz for an amazing reason. I'll discuss their connections to this Parsha at the end of the podcast. Let's start with the inspirational section. Two weeks ago, I spoke about the exodus from Egypt as being a continuation of the flood. The flood is brought because the entire world is corrupted by the sons of the powerful, called Elohim. They're called the B'nai Elohim. Everyone seeks fame and glory, and those on top take whatever women they choose. Hashem destroys that society, but humanity creates those people again. One of them, an earlier paro, does exactly what the original sons of Elohim did. He sees Sarah and takes her, no questions asked. The Torah says Hashem brought plagues upon Egypt, but it never says that he lifted them. With the Exodus, Hashem has created the greatest of the sons of the powerful. These Paros, because of Yosef, own all of Egypt, the people included, and they've forgotten where their power came from. They think it belongs to them. In this telling, Hashem will crush the greatest of all men and demonstrate that the Bnei Elohim, his children, will be ascendant. Last week, I expanded on the theme of Hashem's power. I talked about the first seven plagues, showing Hashem's power from the waters below to the waters above, in a clear order, with some plagues chosen to contrast with particular Egyptian gods. The last three plagues show Hashem's power in time, from the past to the present, the locusts are brought with a ruach kadima, an early wind. They eat everything that was already planted, and then they return to the sea. In a popular Egyptian mythology, the world started as just water, just the sea. The locusts represent a destruction of the past. The middle plague, with darkness so thick you can't move, shows death in the present. And the last plague, the death of the firstborn, shows death in the future. But last week I explored another theme. I spoke about the theme of responsibility. The plagues don't end when Paro acknowledges Hashem's power. They end when the Egyptians and the Bnei Israel alike act. The Bnei Israel take the action of the, Egypt, uh, the Pesach offering, while the Egyptians actually push the people out. Remember, the Egyptians were enslaved by Yosef and the Bnei Israel by Paro. Both people are freed through the plagues, and then the plagues end. The lesson here is one of responsibility. Reaching back to the expulsion from the garden and the challenges of Cain, the exodus is there to teach responsibility. The lesson is that we will learn responsibility, whether it is forced on us through pain or taken by us without that pain. This week, I want to tie it all together. If I had to capture the centerpiece of this week's reading, it is the contrast between the death of the firstborn and the Pesach offering. The Torah continues with related commands, demanding that we only let the circumcised take part in the Pesach offering and telling us that we must dedicate our firstborn to Hashem, to remember that Hashem took Egypt's firstborn. The obvious question is, why do we focus so much on the death of the firstborn? 
Why can't it just be the worst of the plagues? Why does it have to play such a central role in our religious life? The answer, I believe, must start with the Pesach offering. With the Pesach offering, we offer up a seh. A seh can be a lamb or a goat. It is very young and very vulnerable animal. A seh only comes up twice prior to this offering. The second time was when Yaakov is trying to take, change the stripes of Levan's flocks. The use of the word here is nothing but a useful description of what was happening. It is the first use that is critical, and here it is. Then Yitzchak said to his father Avraham, Father, and he answered, Yes, my son. And he said, Here are the firestone and the wood, but where is the seh for the burnt offering? And Avraham said, Elohim will see to his seh for his burnt offering, my son. And the two of them walked on together. In this reading, the seh is Yitzchak. Avraham is offering up his son. He is offering up the entire future of the Jewish people. And that offering is called a seh. If we cast the Pesach offering in the same light, we see a clear parallel. With the Pesach, we are symbolically offering up our entire future so that Hashem does not take it. There's a concept here of dedicating ourselves and our future to Hashem, and it runs throughout the mitzvot of this reading. In the present, we put on tefillin, coloring what we see and what we do around the divine perspective, and in the future, we dedicate our firstborn to Hashem, but we also circumcise ourselves, dedicating our biological imperative to reproduction in the service of Hashem. We'll get to circumcising children another time. The very concept of time is introduced to us in the creation of the first of the months. The Exodus, not coincidentally, has the first dates used since the flood. Boiling it down, we are granted a future because we dedicate our future to Hashem. The Egyptians failed to do so and since some part of their future is taken from them. And these concepts allow us to tie everything together. Week one was the limits of the sons of the powerful and the ascendancy of the children of Hashem. Week two was the concept of responsibility being gendered through blessing or curse. And this week we can see that the children of Israel are ascendant because they take responsibility, not because of pain and death, but because in that first small step they are able to symbolically dedicate their future to God. This isn't a lesson that occurs once long ago. We Learn it again and again, year after year. With every Seder and every child's question, we remember that we have a future because we dedicate that future to God. That is why the Torah says, Ko amar Hashem, b'ni b'chori Yisrael. So said Hashem, my firstborn is Israel. Let's go on to the political next. In today's day and age, many advanced and advancing nations share a common problem. They all owe enormous debts. The greatest of their debts aren't even on the books. The greatest of their debts are to their own people. For the U.S. federal government, these debts are debts to Americans through Medicare and Social Security. Just to give context, the U.S. federal government has an official debt of $27 trillion. But these unfunded liabilities, according to the U.S. Treasury, would add another $46 trillion. And other estimates suggest that these unfunded liabilities are as high as $222 trillion. Let's set aside the dangers of these levels of debt and ask another simple question. How did we get here? 
In almost all Western countries and China, the recipe is quite simple. It is not just massive spending. It is a lack of children. The ratio of elderly versus working age population, corona aside, is expected to get worse and worse with time. Fertility has plummeted. What we're seeing is a tragedy of the commons on a massive scale. And all it took was two ingredients, government pension systems and the pill. With the pill, people could opt out of having children while not opting out of related activities. And with government pensions, they could rely on other people's children to provide the goods and services they themselves would need when they got older. Remember, money is just a construct. You can't eat it. If people aren't producing the excess goods necessary to support life after work, then those who are no longer working can't survive. The traditional formula is that your own children take care of you in your old age, but if you can rely on other people's children, then, as we've seen, you stop having your own. Children become just another life choice, a luxury. You aren't dependent on them for your own well-being. And related activities become just that, activities, pleasures to participate in, relationships as a tool for your own happiness, and often nothing more. You end up with a population not creating B'nai Elohim, sons of the powerful. You end up with a population deciding not to have children at all. Hashem doesn't take their future. They simply give it up. Sadly, in many countries, from Russia to China to the U.S. to Japan, the die seems cast. Short of robots providing for the old, the future is deeply frightening. And all of it comes back to a tragedy of the commons. The on-the-books debt is the debt for programs that we're paying for now. The off-the-books debt is the debt that exists because we don't have children. Given the opportunity to pass a responsibility off, the responsibility of actually establishing a future yourself, people will pass that responsibility off. Like the Egyptians and the B'nai Israel, the decision not to take the most fundamental responsibility to the future will have vast consequences. We are already seeing the suffering brought on by the economic implications. It is the social, political, and spiritual consequences that have yet to be understood. On to the trivial for something a little lighter. Number one, why were the Egyptians afraid they were all going to die? Well, Bavel was based on 12s and 60s. They apparently had a very advanced mathematical system based on base 60. Uh, we're base 10. We can do everything by 10s. The Jewish people were a crossover people. Our God may have been planning 10 plagues, which is how the Egyptians counted, or he may have been planning 12 plagues. And with each of the sets of three plagues earlier on in, this, in, the, in the plagues being the only one the Egyptians could opt out of, the plagues to come after Makat Baharot, after the death of the firstborn, were a threat to everyone. After all, how much worse could it get? The answer is in the Torah. We are all dead men. Number two, immediately after the commandment of the Pesach offering, the people are commanded not to eat leavened bread for seven days. Unlike the commandment to eat the Pesach offering with matzah, which we'll get to, this commandment doesn't commemorate their affliction. Instead, it represents their separation from Egypt. Egypt was the source of bread in the ancient world. They invented effective yeasts and breads that rise like ours do. Of all the aspects of Egyptian culture, only their bread was widely adopted. Their calendar and art and religion never took hold in other places. By rejecting leavening, as opposed to embracing matzah, we reject 
Egypt itself. For an entire weekly cycle, we cleanse ourselves of Egypt's quintessential contribution to humanity. Number three, as covered last week, it is possible Egyptians gave up their wealth because they too had been freed, albeit through pain, and the gifts were an acknowledgement of the freedom that B'nai Israel had been a catalyst of. And number four, Moshe says, and it shall come to pass when your children say unto you, what mean you by this service that you shall say, it is the sacrifice of Hashem's Pesach, for that he passed over the house of the children of Israel when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. And how did the people respond to this? And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Why do they react so strongly? The most important thing to take from a slave is the future. A slave who plans is a dangerous slave. A fundamental part of slavery is robbing the slave of initiative, of planning, of a concept of the future. This is one reason why slaves don't tend to be terribly productive. With few exceptions, the productivity that can be yielded by planning is taken away from them. Moshe is promising these slaves a future. He is promising them children who ask them questions that they can answer. This is a fundamental distinction of the Jewish slavery we see later in the Chumash. The Jewish slavery has time limits. The slave, from the very first day of slavery, can plan. And number five, slavery was rare in Egypt. It was nothing like the slavery of Rome. We can see it in this reading. Even at the worst of times, when children were being drowned, the people had their own houses, families, neighborhoods, and even animals. Slavery isn't necessarily physical pain. Slavery is a mindset, a mindset without a future, without initiative, and without responsibility. We see this in one aspect of the matzah. The people had 14 days warning of the exodus, and nobody thought to prepare a few sandwiches. Unless commanded, they don't do anything. Number six, when it comes to the Jewish people, the firstborn are identified as the opening of the womb. In a more literal translation of the Hebrew phrase, Peterechem, we can read the release of mercy. The granting of the future is the greatest mercy that Hashem can give us. So as I mentioned at the beginning, we covered the structural parts of the Torah reading in the opening. So here I'm going to focus on the symbolism of the Pesach offering itself. So let's break it down bit by bit. First, the people are to take a seh, which is a lamb or a baby goat, to their father's houses. We bring the animal into our father's houses so it can, in a sense, be part of the family. This helps reinforce the connection to the Akedah, which was, after all, about a father sacrificing his son. Two, the seh has to be younger than one year. The seh is young because it represents the future. Three, they are to take it on the 10th of the month and live with it for four days. So there is no seh for the first 10 days. Then the seh lives with the family for four days. Then the seh is offered. As I see it, each day stands in for a miracle of Hashem. The first ten are Hashem's miracles before the people leave the land, the plagues. The people begin to see a future with the tenth plague, and that is when the Seh is brought into their houses on the tenth day. The crossing of the sea, together with the miracles of the bitter waters, the man and the water from the rock, form four miracles, during which the people recognize they have a future. These are represented by the four days, days with the Seh in their houses. Then the people dedicate their future to Hashem with their declaration that all Hashem has spoken, we will do. They do this just before the next miracle, the giving of Torah at dusk. This declaration is represented by the offering of the Seh itself.
Next, the set must be male. The set is male because the male represents the will to reproduce and thus continue into the future. Simple biological level, the woman is able to bear children, but unfortunately, and in reality, a woman can be raped or be denied access to um, male reproductive capability. So the woman represents possibility and potential, and the male represents the will in the Chumash. Next, each house is to slaughter their set, placing the animal's blood on the sides and the tops of their doorway using Azov. Blood in a living body connects all the cells of the body, providing oxygen. The blood that is placed in the doorways serves the same role. It is a method of identifying the households of the Jewish people as its cells. Later, with the mezuzah, the blood of the people will take the form of words. But at this point, the people are not yet ready for words. The cells themselves are not individuals. There must be enough people in each cell to consume the set. So each cell is formed of a small social circle, the building block of a larger society. We sprinkle the blood not with our hands, but with a zov. People argue about what a zov actually was. Its very definition seems shifty. This is appropriate. Just as Adom seems to capture another aspect of Dam, of blood, and Adom being, being Adam being man, a Zov seems to capture another aspect of Zov. All the Zov, or Zob, imply the same thing, a process of change. Israel is a land of Zavat Chalav Duvash, of flowing with milk and honey. To leave something or some places to Azov with the letter Ein, the thing that converts the physical into the spiritual is a Mizbeach, they are marking their houses as belonging to God, and it is a marking of change. Next, they are to, eat the, they are to roast the seh over fire and eat it with matzah and bitter herbs. The offering is eaten with matzah and bitter herbs, and the eating is done as, as in haste. As discussed above, the matzah in this context is a sign of a lack of initiative. What about the bitter herbs? When you eat bitter herbs, your time horizon shrinks. For that short and intense time, all you can think of is the taste. You lose your sense of the future. For an instant, the future vanishes, and you can have an appreciation of what slavery is like. The entire animal has to be roasted. The seh is roasted because it is a transfer offering, an oleh. Burning is how an offering is sent to Hashem. The akedah was to be an oleh offering. None of it can be left until the morning. If anything remains, it too has to be burned. Finally, the seh is totally consumed during the night. Whether through fire or eating, every part of the seh is consumed. As meat, the seh represents short-term sustenance. By totally consuming it, we dedicate that short-term sustenance to the service of Hashem, and we show that we trust that He will provide what we need afterwards. This is why households that are too small to eat the entire seh have to join with others in order to finish it. It has to be eaten with shoes on the feet and loins girded with a staff in the hand. This demonstrates again our trust in the redemption, like packing a suitcase for Mashiach. And finally, it has to be eaten quickly. This reinforces our haste, despite forewarning. It captures our inability to act independently. And with the set prepared, Hashem will then pass over Egypt. He will kill the firstborn, but not the firstborn of those with the blood on the doors. Those who are willing to dedicate our symbolic future to Hashem and to trust in Hashem to take care and provide that future, like Avraham did with the Akedah, are the ones that have a future. Taken together, through the Paschal offering, the Pesach offering, the people are dedicating their future, 
forming a body politic, a nation, and recognizing their dependence on Hashem. Answers to counting common questions. I'm only going to look at one question this time. There's a counting problem in this reading. The Torah says twice that we were slaves in Egypt for 430 years. But elsewhere, the number of years is far lower. So what's going on? I think the answer goes back to the dark covenant I discussed two weeks ago. Avraham is told that his descendants will be enslaved for four generations, but it doesn't say who will enslave them. Near the end of the quasi-vision, there are furnaces and smoke and a darkness describing a word used nowhere else in Chumash, described using a word used nowhere else in Chumash. Perhaps Avraham was not promised a slavery in Egypt, but simply four generations of slavery, four periods of slavery. The people left Egypt early because they were at risk of having no future. The Midrash said they stopped having children. The text itself can point to all the boys being drowned. One could suggest that they cried out using the same words as those used to describe the crying of Stom. It is a cry of those who don't want to continue. They had to be rescued. Hashem had to zochar them. He had to act not because they deserved it, but because he had a contract with Avraham. He was obligated to rescue them early. But the remaining years do not go away. The words used here are used in a place called Sukkot. It is a magical place in that it seems to be many places. It is a word which we'll discuss elsewhere that suggests timelessness. The text itself does so. That night is described as a night of watching for all of B'nai Israel throughout their generations. Perhaps we can read this passage not as a telling of the past, but as a telling of what is to be. When our 430 years of slavery are complete, and I hope they are, then we will finally be redeemed. I said at the beginning that this episode was dedicated to two people who passed away in the last two weeks. When I go on a shiva call, I always ask the same question. Tell me one thing about the person who passed away that you would want to spread. It could be a character trait, an action, a belief, or a story, or whatever. The stories of these two people ended up being tied closely to the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, of the Exodus. Israel ben Avraham was a teacher in South Africa. He taught enormous numbers of young men and women. Many moved to Israel on the basis of his influence. The characteristic his daughter told me about was that he gave up on no one. Others might have said that the child had no future, but he insisted that there was a future to be had. And he never gave up on himself either. He acquired his PhD at 77 years of age. Yisrael ben Avraham was a man dedicated to establishing a future which was dedicated to Hashem, and he never gave up on doing so. The connections to this parsha should be obvious. Miriam bat Moshe Yaakov's son told me a remarkable story. Miriam lost her parents and her two sisters in the Shoah, in the Holocaust. But she and two other sisters survived. They survived by sticking together. At one critical point, they ran away from a death march at Auschwitz. This story captured two beautiful, contrasting ideas. By depending on her sisters, Miriam found the independence to make an incredibly difficult choice. As you know, as I discussed earlier, I see the Shoah as a continuation of the story of the Egyptian slavery. This was a woman who found a future because she leaned on a tiny sliver of a community and took the responsibility of making a real choice in a world in which choice was only an illusion. May Yisrael ben Avraham and Miriam bat Moshe Yaakov serve as examples to us all. Finally, 
If any of the ideas in this episode help you or appeal to you, then share them. You don't have to share them in my name. Go ahead and steal them. They'll serve their purpose just as well. Thank you and Shabbat Shalom.